All right. One more time. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Did, did anybody get the memo? Like, that's what we do here. We say hello and good morning. Uh, yeah, great to be with you again. My name is Glenn. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Luke and uh, chapter 7. Uh, we, uh, I should note that uh, one of the other announcements would be we, we put all of our messages now up on iTunes and, and uh, on our website as audios, podcasts, which we've been doing actually for years. Uh, but we also now have videos of the, the messages up as well. So if you miss a Sunday, you can subscribe to the audio or you can go on the website and check out the uh, message from the week before. And we encourage that as a church because what we are doing as a church is we are learning about Jesus. And the best way that we can do that is we go through books of the Bible together. And we've been in the Gospel of Luke since the first week of December. We will be taking a break in the summertime, just so you know, uh, because it is a very long Gospel, the longest one of all of them. Uh, but it's an amazing passage so far that we've been in. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Luke's record of it anyway. And uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 this morning. Before we do that, let me pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much again for this day. Father, as we prayed already and as we acknowledged, you are a good, good Father. Um, Lord, we thank you for the life of Christ, of your Son. We thank you for the life of Luke and the apostles and all of the writers of the New Testament. We thank you that we have their written record and testimony. We thank you for the story that we read today. We thank you that in this story, Jesus himself marvels. He marvels at a man in a good way. So, Father, we thank you for that. I pray that as we look into this passage today that we will be blessed, we will be encouraged, we will learn more about you, who you are, and what you have done and who that means we are, and how out of that then we should live. And Father, I pray these things in His worthy name. Amen. So <clears throat> those of you who are rocksters, you know the pattern. I ask a lot of questions. Uh, my question for you this morning is, is one that uh, I know is true for me, and it's happened many, many times in my life, but how many times have you ever had someone say to you that, as far as they're concerned, what you have is blind faith? Anybody ever been accused of having a blind faith? That your faith in God, your faith in the Bible, this ancient old document, you know, you can open it up and, and there's dust inside of it when you blow on it, you know, that you actually believe the stuff that's written in there? It's just blind faith, guys, isn't it? I mean, literally, they're basically saying something like this. Aren't you believing in something that you can't even see? Not only can you not even see what you believe in and you have faith in, but you really can't even prove it, can you? Materially? Can you prove it? It's blind faith. But then again, and I was thinking about this as, as I prepared for this week, I'm thinking, you know, then again, I think sometimes, sometimes, maybe me, not all of you, the way that we live our Christian life actually gives evidence to those who do not believe at all that, yeah, our faith might actually be blind because we act sometimes as if there's a detachment between what we do here on Sunday and the things we nod and give assent to about what the Bible says, about what Jesus teaches, but then we actually live our lives as if it's a fantasy. And so we may be helping people who have that kind of thought, right? So you'll remember last week um, that we learned this. No human being can function without actually truly believing that there is something 
called absolute truth. Despite how many people object to being told that that is true, right? The same is true, I want to suggest to you this morning, with faith. It's impossible for human beings to get up out of bed in the morning and go out into this beautiful, wonderful, amazing world that sometimes is scary and crazy without having faith placed somewhere and in something. And so it's impossible, I would suggest, for human beings to function without us, regardless of the adamant protests of evangelical atheists. Right? That's what I like to call them these days, because really, they're, they're, like they're, they're really promoting atheism as a, as a belief system, and I would suggest as a faith. They will say that Christians, people who believe in God, have faith because they believe in something they cannot prove that there is apparently no evidence for, and therefore we have faith that is blind because, in their opinion, the reality is there is no God. So besides being accused of having a blind faith, have you ever had someone say to you directly, come on, there's no God. There's no evidence for that. I have (laughs) many times, and not just because of my role and responsibility that I have today. Our blind faith, they might suggest, is actually nothing more than a crutch for feeble, uneducated minds. Kind of insulting, isn't it? You kind of like want to rebel against that, right? But come on, we need to to have a defense for that. More importantly, as Christians, we actually need to believe it. Amen? We need to believe it. So, however, just as saying there's absolutely no such thing as absolute truth, Right, which we saw last week, is obviously a contradiction because you're, you're actually making an absolute statement when you say that. It's also impossible to say uh, that, that there's no such thing as, or pardon me, there's absolutely no God. There's absolutely no God. It's also an absolute claim, and it is also a statement of faith. I have debated atheists publicly and one-on-one, and whenever I get to the point of saying to them, that's faith, Because they'll often say, what we believe. And then I'll go, that's faith. Oh, they get angry. As soon as you go that direction, atheists get angry. And I understand. Because they don't believe what they believe is a faith. Webster's defines faith this way. A firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Now, there are other definitions, but that's the primary definition. A firm belief in something for which there is no proof which can equally be applied, again, I want to suggest, to every worldview on the planet today, every religion on the planet today, including the atheist. What they are simply saying is this, I have a firm belief that there is no God, even though I cannot prove that to be true. Okay? I'm giving this preamble this morning for two reasons. Well, three. It applies to our text, but also for you who are Christians, that we have confidence, but also for those of you who are skeptics and atheists, maybe, to think. Maybe to to reevaluate the reality of what you believe. Our best definition as Christians, actually Webster's kind of takes it from this, believe it or not, comes from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 11, And this is the definition the Bible gives of faith. I'll put it on screen for you. It is this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. So what is seen, look at this, was not made out of things that are visible. Hmm. You know, let that just stir around in your mind a little bit because it's really the definition of reality, right? You'll notice the repeated use of the word seen there, what we can see, right? Which is, for most people, which is, that is reality, what they can see. If we can't see it, well, then it's not a reality is what people would say. And that's where we get the popular saying, seeing is believing, right? How many Christians believe that statement? Seeing is believing. Be careful. I remember as a young, uh, a young boy, my parents grew up in Cape Breton. We were living in Toronto. We'd take road trips to Nova Scotia, Cape Breton a few times. And every time we would go down there, we would stop in uh, um, New Brunswick, uh, Bay of Fundy, different sites, right? And my favorite, which I always told my parents we've got to go back to, is the Magnetic Hill. A- anybody been to the Magnetic Hill? It's amazing. Like, you, you drive your car, it looks like you're driving down a hill, right? And there's a stop sign that says, stop your car here. And then you put your car in neutral, and it says, take your foot off the brake. The car starts going backwards up the hill. Seeing is believing? It's an optical illusion. If you get out of your car and you walk over about 100 yards, and you look back at the people that are in their cars freaking out because they're driving backwards up a hill, they think they're going downhill. So seeing, uh, believing, I'm not so sure. Uh, most of you might not be aware, I asked one young man in our church this morning uh, the name of a, a very famous pioneer of rock climbing. His name was Royal Robbins. Anyone heard of him? Uh, he lived from 1935 and passed away last year, 82 years of age. So he was a very safe climber because he was a pioneer. He climbed with ropes and pitons and also without. And he climbed some of the greatest peaks in Yosemite and all around the world. Um, he, he gave a, a really great description of what it means to be a successful climber, right? And, and he said it's not about physical strength, and it's not about the best equipment or even the best training. He said it's really about seeing things the way they really are. It's called reality, right? He wrote an article for uh, Sports Illustrated, and I found this quote from it. He said this, If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we are doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves and our capabilities and our weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we will climb safely. Makes sense. And then he ends with these words. For climbing is an exercise in reality. I like that. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or skill. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be may have his illusions rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. This is why I don't rock climb. I've looked at the rock and I've said, in reality, I will die. (laughs) Okay, so I'm not going to do it, right? But there's a powerful principle behind what this man said, which applies to our text in a beautiful way today, and that is this. Wise people resist seeing life as they would like to see it. They resist that. They're honest with themselves about their capabilities and what they, in fact, see. And this principle applies in many areas of life, but no more or no less than in the matters of faith. And why do I say that? Because the essence of true faith is an exercise in reality. 
I like to say to people who are skeptics or atheists who are questioning me, and, and after we've had a conversation for about 30 minutes, do you think I've had a frontal lobotomy? Now, half of them say yes. <laughs> right? The other half, you know, I mean, the, the, this takes investigation. It's not blind faith. It's faith in a person based on the evidence of eyewitnesses. It's also faith based on the experience of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So this is our, our text for today, is, is, is an amazing story following the Sermon on the Mount about a Roman centurion who sends two emissaries, two groups of people, to Jesus because he wants Jesus' help, not for himself, but for his servant. Read with me. Verse 1 says this, After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So this is Luke's very short, brief segue from the Sermon on the Mount into this story. But we see even right there, he's finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people. That's what we've been seeing from Jesus for weeks now, is that he's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching what? The kingdom of God. How to get in and how to be left out. He's preaching boldly, and he's flipping everything upside down. I want to show you Matthew's ending of the Sermon on the Mount because he, he expounds on it, extends it a little bit, and he adds these words. He says, and when Jesus, same thing, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, mark that word, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds were following him. We've made this point repeatedly. I will make it again today because people sometimes just don't realize in our day and age today, you can go to rock concerts, you can go to hear positive mental attitude speakers, you can go see Oprah, and thousands and tens of thousands of people were there, and we go, now they're rock stars. Thousands upon thousands of people were following Jesus. The things that he was accomplishing and doing in his day, besides what was coming out of his mouth, were unbelievable. 100% of the people brought to him who were struggling with disease near death were healed. Not a few, 100%. That could draw a crowd, don't you think? It did in that day. But he was also speaking with authority. Now, we need to be careful. This is not authoritarianism, which is bad. This is power. Many people didn't understand exactly what was coming out of his mouth, but, but they heard what he said, and, and they recognized some truth in it, and it held power. Some of them appreciated that power, recognized it for what it was, others not so much. We read in our text last week that many, many came, many, many came to hear Jesus, many, many heard Jesus. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. He, he didn't want to just draw a crowd and have people hear him and go home and think, well, hey, thank you for the good advice. I can take my life from here. No, of course he wanted to die, save you from your sins. And, and then, then he wanted to have you go and do what he said. That was the expectation. It wasn't a requirement, of course. We know that you do these things first in order to gain God's acceptance and approval, to gain your salvation. We cannot work at it to get that. No, these are the signs, these are the things that people who are his true disciples, who have come, heard, and acknowledged that this power can only come from above, from God, are his true disciples. 
and they will do what he says. They will bear fruit. Why? Because they believed, trusted, had faith that he was indeed God in the flesh. Now, you've noticed I've highlighted Matthew's conclusion for you because of the word, uh, the use of the word authority. Uh, we need to get an appropriate picture here this morning in our minds of Jesus because, because honestly, I fear that, and you guys know this, and some of you fear this too, that many Christians uh, or, or those who think they're Christian have similarly patronizing views that some people in our culture and world have of him, right? I mean, Gandhi liked what he had to say, but he didn't believe he was divine. Many, many people love the fact that Jesus, you know, is just a really nice, olive-skinned, soft-spoken, you know, loving guy who wore sandals and a tunic, and he went around healing the sick, and he, and he said beautiful words, and, and he was really loving, and he was really kind, and he was really gentle, and, and, they are, and he was moral, like really moral, and they loved that Jesus. Was he that kind of Jesus? Yes, <laughs> but he was far more than that far more than that. If, if, if you look at the gospel, what we've seen so far, I mean, the, the reality is as people heard him preach th- with the authority that he was preaching, it became increasingly clear to he, the, everyone who he in fact was claiming to be. And as people faithfully hear him preach today, that becomes clear. And do you know what it becomes clear to them? Well, as people hear him faithfully preach today, it becomes clear, we don't like that, do we? People hear it, even people part of the rock, they're like, you know, I was, you know, I get, you know, like whenever it's a really encouraging, uplifting, Jesus is love, God is love, people, I love that sermon, right? And then when it's preached about the authority and the power that Jesus commands of us and his authority that he has over everyone, there's kind of silence afterwards. I get the silent treatment. I, I understand that. Jesus did too. It's, it's remarkable in the days of Jesus as he's preaching, and we said this last week, that the crowds follow him, but over a while, the crowds started to thin. And they started to thin because they realized that this authority meant one thing. Christ is demanding the position of ultimate authority over your life and my life, a position that not even you can possess. Wow. In our world, in our culture today, that's that's just not acceptable, is it? That's hard to give up. It shouldn't be if we understood who he is and what he wants to bring to us. So as we approach our text today, this great story, let's, let's understand the context. The picture here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is this. People were beginning to ask this question, just who is this man? Or put another way, just who does he think he is? Right? Pride wells up in people. But the real question was, who is he? Well, many, like today, just wanted to see him as this great moral teacher, someone who could teach us how to be good moral people. And then they began to notice this authority thing, not just in his words, but in his miracles too. His power of his miracles and his word was throwing people. Some were loving it, some not so much. C.S. Lewis put it very, very well. I want to quote something from Mere Christianity for you. He put it this way, better words and more eloquent than I can, that's why I'm quoting him. He said, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Strong words from a former atheist who came to faith through the ministry to him personally of J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, right? From Oxford University, both of them. He goes on to say this, and I'll put it on screen. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Oh, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, I think today, the reason why I give this stark comparison for you this morning is we're 2,000 years removed from this. There is a reason why the majority of people in another year and a half to two years in Jesus' life are going to be standing united with the religious leaders screaming, crucify him, crucify him. This was his ministry. He is the Son of God. He was bringing the truth. Now to our story. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. So here we have a a guy who's a middle-ranking Roman soldier Um, Centurions got their titles. Most of you know this because they were in charge of approximately 100 men in their platoon, their their group. Um, Luke tells us that this particular centurion uh, had a servant, which is really a slave, uh, who was so sick that he was at the point of death. So look at what else, though, in this text, as we're going to see this morning, that we actually know about this man. He's valued, and he values others. It's interesting. This servant holds a very special place in his life and his home. He is greatly valued by the centurion, is he not? For what we don't know, he doesn't tell us. I mean, he's a good cook. Does he bring me good wine? I don't know. But he's valued by the centurion in a very special way. And that in itself in those days is very unusual. Slaves were a dime a dozen. If a slave didn't do exactly what you did wanted or wasn't living up to the standards that you want, get rid of him. Get another one. This is unusual for this man to be behaving this way. So he had this servant, he values him very much, but I think we can also see that he valued someone else as well, didn't he? For some reason, the centurion valued Jesus. This is remarkable. He hasn't met him, for what we know from the whole story, but he values Jesus. Somehow he's heard of him, not, we don't know how, but it's not surprising in that day because again, The fame of Jesus was spreading all over the place. He'd been now preaching for about a year and a half, raising people from the dead, healing everyone. The religious leaders were getting upset about him. It was everywhere. Capernaum was now becoming his hometown. uh, That He would come to Peter's house there and heal people there. So he was well known. But from everything we know, this centurion has not met him. So next, as we will see, this centurion centurion himself is also greatly valued. He's greatly valued by the Jewish people who live in Capernaum, right? They're willing to go on his behalf and plead his case to Jesus, 
because he's been so good to them. Now, it was pretty standard fare for Roman officials, Roman rulers and centurions over a city to try to gain the favor of the Jewish religious people in the community. I mean, if nothing more for the reason of peace, right? Keeping the peace, it was one of the reasons. But this guy has gone beyond that. This relationship has been elevated to an absolutely other level. And then we read, And when they came to Jesus, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who has built us our synagogue. So these Jewish men do as their centurion friends asks, and they find Jesus, and we see in the text, they plead with him earnestly. Now, I can just see them, right? Now, these aren't religious leaders in the synagogue from what we can tell. They're just Jewish men in from the community who are going on behalf of this man to speak on his behalf, and they're pleading with Jesus that, that he will do what they ask. Now, we don't know actually what they think of Jesus themselves at this point, but they, we do know that the centurion thinks very highly of Jesus, and so their attitude is, well, if If he thinks Jesus can help him and his servant, well, we'll do this for him. We will plead his case. What they say tells us, I think, a lot about their view, look at this, of reality. The way they see things and what reality is to them. First, they say, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now, let that just sit for a second, right? It's tad presumptuous, isn't it? Right? Just a little bit. I mean, they don't know who Jesus is. But they probably have heard of him. Come on. But they're, they're saying, we think this man is worthy of this. In our humble opinion, based on what we know of this man, what he has done and who he is, that no matter who you are, you should do this for him because we think so. Now, I'm extrapolating a little bit, right? But don't forget, they were pleading, right? So what we see in the text is just a little bit, right? It's presumptuous. But look, what what is the basis of which they're asking Jesus to find him worthy? Merit, right? What he has done for them is based on merit. Secondly, they tell Jesus why. Well, you should do this for him because this centurion loves our nation and and he's built a synagogue for us, which means he approves of our religion and he's supportive of us. us. So you're Jewish, Jesus. You should should like him too and you should do that for him because of that. Based on all this, we believe he is a worthy person. (laughs) I, I, I wish I'd been there. Because look on Jesus' face. I mean, what might it have been like, right? I mean, this has been their view all along with Jesus. They, they basically, they say to Jesus, look at what we do. Look at how we keep the law. Look at how we dress. Look at how we tithe. Look at how outwardly we are good. Therefore, we are acceptable and should be approved in God's sight based on our what? Works. What we do. And Jesus is all along throughout the Sermon on the Mount and every other teaching, he's going... Guys, no, (laughs) that's not how it works for your salvation. It's not how it works with God. So, I mean, the reality is ultimately they haven't placed their faith and trust in God, have they? They've placed their faith and trust in whom? Themselves. 
or the work of the centurion. That's their view, right? That's the way they see it. Many do today. That is their reality. What they see, the actions of a person, makes them worthy. That's their reality. Well, the story goes on. In verse 6 it says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This is interesting. So, regardless of their perspective, it appears Jesus found something at least interesting, different about the centurion. Some reason Jesus is like, I got to meet this guy. Right? And so Jesus decides, because Jesus knows that the worthiness that they see is not the deal, but there's something about this guy. Why would he care so passionately about a slave? Jesus goes with them. The centurion, hearing that Jesus is actually coming, he's like, oh, no, 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 I can't have it in my home. He sends another set of emissaries to intercept Jesus on the way to his home, right, to speak to him, to speak to them. When they intercept Jesus, they speak for the one who has sent them, which was pretty standard. And as we look at this text, one phrase stands out, does it not? I've highlighted it. It, 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 He actually says, now catch this, the centurion's not there. They're saying this on behalf of the centurion, and he says, or they say on his behalf, I am not worthy, in clear contradiction to what they had just said. He didn't know what we don't think, what they had said. He's just speaking from his heart. I find that remarkable. What, what does that tell you? What, what, does that, what does it say? What, I would suggest one word about this man's character and about his heart. Humble. What was the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Not necessarily financially poor, but spiritually poor, broken, bankrupt, got nothing that I can provide to God to earn my salvation. That's the first step of entry into the kingdom of God. And here's this Roman soldier. Well, now the centurion takes us to the heart of the story. The heart of the story. It's a beautiful picture. And again, these men are speaking on his behalf. It says this, But say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this or do that. He's got this down pretty good, doesn't he? He's a soldier. He knows the rules. So here's a man who I would suggest has a clear picture and a clear understanding of reality. (laughs) Real life. He's got it nailed. He sees things exactly for the way they are. First, he saw the reality of who he was. That's remarkable. He's a successful soldier. He's wealthy. He's got power. And he's humble. (laughs) He he sees himself as unworthy. And despite his rank in that day, his wealth and his status and authority, he's unworthy to have Jesus do anything for him, for his servant. And that's why he sent emissaries to Jesus because he didn't even think that he's worthy to have a holy man like this in his home, under his roof. Why? Because I'm a pagan. 
I'm a skeptic. I'm a Roman soldier. I'm outside of the covenant of the Jewish people. This is remarkable. This is humble. It's a beautiful picture. But also, he knows exactly who he is. More importantly, he knows the reality of who Jesus is. He had to have. He had to have. And please see this today. This centurion, knowing who Jesus is in reality, demonstrates his total faith and trust in him when he says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. I know who you are. I'm letting my friends tell you who you are, who I know you to be, and my faith in you is such that I believe you can heal my servant even from a distance. Do you see the one other thing that he's also done here? A Roman military soldier has given his testimony to these Jewish men. He's making known to them his faith and trust in Jesus to be able to do these things. He's elevating Jesus above himself. And also look at his understanding of authority. Right? It's a beautiful picture that he shows here. He compares himself to Jesus in that both men are under authority. He gets that and he loves that. He's under the authority of those above him. He's only over those who are below him because he's using their authority to implement what they want. He gets that, but ultimately he sees one more thing. Jesus is above all of that. Amen? Jesus is above all that. And he sees that. He has ultimate authority over life, death, and over him, over you, over me, over all things. Now, I'm glad he has that kind of authority. I've often said to people that as a pastor, I'm under the authority of the local elders, but I'm also under the authority of the leaders of our denomination. I like that, right? You as members and attenders of the church are supposed to be under the authority, yes, ultimately of Jesus, but under your local elders and pastors. You should like that. Not everybody does. But you should. We should. I like it. Why? Because I need to be under authority. I need to be responsible to someone. And ultimately, we all must be accountable to Christ. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. (laughs) And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. I think this is one of the most, honestly, one of the most beautiful verses in the Gospel of Luke. It's pivotal. It's it. It's the Gospel in a nutshell. Right here, this is the conclusion of it. He marveled at him. It's amazing. Jesus hasn't even met the man, right? He hasn't even met him. He's just heard his testimony through these other people, and he's amazed He hears all this from his friends, and yet we read he marvels at him. This Greek word's interesting. This Greek word is only used, well, it's used quite often in the New Testament, but it's primarily used to describe the word, the Greek word, to describe how people marvel at Jesus. You'll remember when he preached in his hometown, we keep coming back to it, right? Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and he preaches in Nazareth, right? In his home synagogue, where they loved him at first, and then they wanted to kill him, again, because of the power and authority of what he was saying, But it says this, Luke said this, he recorded this, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? That's where they begin to question him. 
But however, only twice, listen, only twice in all of the gospel records do we read that Jesus marveled. Guess when? Well, obviously right here at the faith of a pagan Roman Gentile, but he also marveled in Mark 6.6 at the lack of faith of those in his home synagogue. Those are the only two times Jesus marvels. He marvels at this man's faith and at the unbelief of those in his own town. And that's why I would suggest, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even to the people that he came for first who were waiting for the Messiah has he found such faith. So let's look, I, four things I want to show you really quickly before we conclude. What Jesus found in this man that he marveled at. Four things that he marveled at we can just pick up from the text. Number one, his nationality. Again, I've repeated it a few times. He, he's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. He wasn't raised going to Sunday school. Okay, they didn't have that, but in the synagogue, right? The Torah. He wasn't raised as part of the covenant family. So that was, that was unbelievable that a person outside of the Jewish faith would have that kind of faith. Secondly was his position. I mean, Roman soldiers were known for their power, yes, but also for their brutality. <laughs> Most did not rule with peace and, hey, love, it's all, let me build you a temple, let me like, build you some nice roads. No, like you got out of line, you were beaten. So this was remarkable. that This man would not only be humble, but he would also show such concern for one of his servants, one of his slaves. Thirdly, his status. He was a wealthy man. I mean, in that community, in that culture, he would be in the top 1% of all the people in that community. As far as, He would have a beautiful house. He would have servants, obviously. He would have many women. He would have whatever he wanted. But he was very, very wealthy. And the idea, as Jesus will speak to us later in Luke, it's easier for a rich man to get through the what? <laughs> the eye of a needle than the kingdom of God. So he marveled at that for sure, but really I think the number one thing he marveled at was the certainty of this man's faith. This man was so certain. I mean, he, he, he could have looked like a fool, couldn't he? He could have sent these guys, go talk to Jesus, you know, tell him I've got this servant, I want him to come and heal him, and, and, and then, listen, don't tell him to come to my house, just tell him to do it from a distance. He could have looked like an absolute fool, right? He didn't care. And so Jesus saw his, his certainty, it's one thing that I think really amazed Jesus. Rather than amazing Jesus with the lack of faith that his own Jewish brothers and sisters were displaying, this Roman centurion is amazing him with his faith. It, it's, again, it's a beautiful picture. So, and that is, again, why I think what we saw earlier in Hebrews 11 is important. It says this. Look, again, I'll put it back on screen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things seen. Both those words Assurance and conviction can also be translated certainty, right? Certainty. This centurion expressed that certainty, that reality, when he said, but just, Jesus, just say the word. You don't even have to come and touch him, lay your hands on him. You don't have to come to my house and see him. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. Listen, if, you, if, you, if you're here today and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You have that future certainty too, do you not? Do you not? <laughs> well, I hope, truly hope that you do know that. 
This man's faith was obviously well-placed, wasn't it? It was obviously well-placed. Why? Verse 10 tells us, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Again, this could have turned out pretty badly for the centurion. He could have looked pretty foolish. But what do you think happened in that home that day? A lot of celebrating, don't you think? I think there were probably a few conversations where people were like, wow, we, we thought the centurion maybe had lost it a bit, right? And, and, and this, but he really believed that Jesus could do this. And we saw before we left this man near death on his deathbed. A centurion certainly thought he was going to die, which is why he sent us. And we come home, and he's sitting up, taking nourishment. That's amazing. So, friends, I, I want to hope that really with you today that you'll leave here today with a faith that sees more clearly, a faith that is far from blind. Are you there? I don't mean present by saying yes. I, you, <laughs> are you awake? Are you there? Is your faith that strong today in Christ? You know, I propose to you that those who refuse to believe in God, whose faith in this life and this life only, are are not facing reality but wishful thinking, if not disastrous, disastrous thinking. Wishful in this sense. I mean, they believe that they can live their lives however they want, and there will be, at the end of the day, no consequences. That is not reality. Please see that today if that's your idea. It's not reality. On the other hand, the person who sees clearly and not merely as he would like to see or she would like to see is just as Royal Robbins has said, on safe ground. You have certainty, which is exactly what Luke, writing this gospel to his dear friend Theophilus, wanted him to have, right? Is certainty. Ultimately, then, there are two views of reality. Seeing yourselves as deserving of God's acceptance and approval no matter how your life you live your life or on the other hand someone who is completely unworthy of Christ's unmerited favor his mercy and grace yet you have received it if you can say yes to that today that you see Jesus for who he really is then your faith will sustain you with certainty of that hope for the future so let me suggest to you today let's us all go and live that reality. I mean, really live that reality today and this week. Amen? Pray with me, would you?